How should I sit? However, man, like, just as long as you're comfortable. Don't say episode. Don't okay. say sorry, don't say episode. Can I say welcome? If you want, it's still weird, but I'll let you have that one. Okay. We haven't okay. got an intro jingle yet. Welcome, everyone. And on today's Fusion podcast, we have a wide celebrity panel with us. So I'll hand it over to Mr. William Tricky, who is going to introduce himself very quickly. Hi, I'm Will. I'm a... Don't know what to say. <laughs> That's Will. Uh, and you may, you know, some of our regular listeners will be familiar with our next two voices. Opposite me, we have Mr. Andrew Malcolm Neal. I like the idea that there are regular listeners, as in the people who heard the last one. There is going to be more than one person. They might have listened more than one. We're going to have that one super keen follower who's just listened to all of this our podcasts. This goes to you. Many times. And then to my right, we have Mr. Joe Allen. Hello. I'm still here. <laughs> Joe Allen is still here. That's he never actually left the room. No, we never. We, we just live here, to be honest. Finally, we have myself, Mr. Bavin Patel. And this is the Fusion Podcast. Bavin has nothing funny to say. I have nothing funny to say. No. That was better than... I have no idea what to say. Today's episode, we're going to be discussing what fusion actually is, uh, where it happens, like what you need for it to happen, and how it happens. So we're going to basically cover a wide range of things. What is fusion? Uh, I'm going to say it's when you have two nuclei that you probably collide head on, and fusion is when you get a reaction that ends up in them combining. Fusing. That's going to be my fusing, my definition. So they're fusing. You can't say fusing is fusion. I mean, it kind of is though. Like, what comes from what? Do you know what I mean? No, not even slightly. So like, does <laughs> the word like you know we're fusing two cuisines uh-huh. come from nuclear fusion? No. Or does nuclear fusion <laughs> come from fusing two cuisines? Uh, I see. Yeah. yeah. No, good point. Good point. Well made. Yes. Thank you. You we should really be eating a nice fusion meal. Well presenting this what like Italian Thai food or something that could work maybe like steak on pizza or something so Joe what do you think of when people say fusion well there's many different different places it happens uh, we see it all around the universe in stars and this is probably the the main place that it happens the only place that it happens other than the end when, of a star when we, when we give it a go supernova start of a star end of a is star that part of a star Basically, anything star-related probably has some human in there. Star physics. Yeah. A little bit of human fusion. A <laughs> <laughs> little bit of human fusion. You mean like scientific I think, fusion? I mean scientific fusion. The human fusion is the problem he has there. Yeah. A little bit. Not fusing of humans together. Yeah. Fusion by humans. Right. For humans. For humans. <laughs> For the future humans. Yeah. That could be cool, though. You could be like General Grievous with like multiple arms. I was thinking Abraham Lincoln of fusion, by fusion, for fusion. So how how do you picture fusion, Will? Like in your head? In my head, yeah. You get you get one nucleus, which is a ball of little little more more balls. Yeah. <laughs> and another nucleus, which is another ball of little balls. This is this is a very childish thing. Yeah. Too much of it. And they 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 smash together. Yeah. And you end up with one big bundle of balls. I right. think we should we should point out that Will is miming this. Which I'm is miming this with podcast. my hands. He which has makes great podcasts. Two groups of balls in his hands, two and he's fusing them together to make one bigger ball. Of balls. It's very dramatic. Well, that's not going to make the cut, is it? It might. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of myself as the layman's describer, ah. the lame man. The layman balls. Is that because you haven't yeah. done any of the reading yet? 
Well, you guys didn't give me any pre-reading. You've come all prepared. You're doing a fusion PhD. I feel like you should just know <laughs> You're the information. Yeah. I've been focusing too much on lasers. Okay, ah. lasers. I thought it's one. So why don't we see fusion on a more day-to-day basis? Why is it only in stars that we see it, or when, whenever we're having a crack? It's only recently in Vogue. <laughs> yeah. People aren't really people aren't really down with it until recent years. These things come in and out of fashion. Like haircuts. No, so uh, it's pretty hard to do. These little balls, as well as so aptly describing them, they don't really want to go together, and they they need a lot of energy to overcome their repulsion, essentially. Why don't they want to go together? Because they are charged. Mm. Um, for instance, in stars, stars are often fusing protons, which are positively charged. So try and, if you've ever taken two magnets and tried to push the two positive ends together, you'll have felt the repulsion. It's essentially that, but slightly different in that you'd want them to push together so much that they become one which is a bit hard to describe with magnets, but basically it's hard. It's a similar analogy. So with, you can force your magnets together yourself, but essentially what you're doing in stars, you're throwing two magnets together. So if you just had the two positive ends of a magnet, you need to get them to a high enough velocity or speed, which in a star is a high enough temperature, and you need to point those at each other, and once they get close enough, a different force is going to overcome that and bring them together. It's called the strong force. And this is the force that actually binds together all of the different nucleons. So the nucleons are literally the smaller balls that make up the big ball that is your nucleus. If two things can get close enough, they kind of get pulled together by that strong force. And that is actually what causes the fusion of the two nucleuses together. The key, the key difference over the strong and the Coulomb force, though, is strong force is strong over small distances. Coulomb force is stronger over large distances. Yeah. So you need to bring that distance down, you need to overcome that Coulomb force so that the strong force can take, take over and bring those, bring those balls together and fuse them. And the way you overcome that is with very high energies. I feel we've been saying larger and smaller quite a lot. Which, when you're saying larger and smaller, what do you mean? What's, what kind of a length scale do you need to get the strong force to be acting? You're looking at the order of like atomic sizes. A hydrogen, for example, a hydrogen atom, I think the atom itself is about... 10 to the minus 10 meters. So zero, the electrons. zero, nine, zero is one yeah. meters. If I was a, a hydrogen atom, probably like the solar system would be what I, I would be. You're looking, for fusion, you're looking even smaller. You need to get down to femtometers for the strong force to take over. Insert analogy here. Either way, the scales that we're looking at are essentially... It's the atomic scale. The atomic it's scale. The, so No, it's the nuclear scale. Alright, yeah, it's the nuclear scale. The nuclear scale. <laughs> so the nuclear scale is even smaller than like the size of atoms. So if you imagine an actual hydrogen atom itself, the, the centre of it, the nucleus, is probably less than 1% of the entire volume of it. So you've got the, this very, very small nucleus, and then essentially like massively far away are the electrons which are orbiting around it. So you have to get it to that very, very, very small, small size and get it to that distance in order for fusion to happen. And all the while, the repulsion force is getting stronger and stronger and stronger as you, as you push those things together. In that case, why does that happen at all? To fuse together, the nuclei, or balls, need to <laughs> uh, have enough uh, energy to come close enough together. They need to get over an er- energy barrier. The energy that the nuclei have in the sun is not actually enough to go over this energy barrier. 
So what they can do to get past this is they can quantum tunnel. And quantum tunnel is a quantum mechanical effect, very cool effect, where something can borrow a small amount of energy as long as the time and the energy they uh, borrow is small enough, they can actually go over this energy barrier or go through this energy barrier and quantum tunnel. They actually bring themselves closer together by borrowing energy for a short amount of time. You can actually um, imagine it as, let's say you're trying to walk up a hill, but you're very, very tired, so you can't get all the way to the top of the hill. It just seems like a lot of effort. But then you see a little tunnel going through the hill, and you know going straight is much, much easier than going up. So you just walk through this little tunnel and essentially tunnel through this hill. That is essentially the same effect what's going on. These particles are finding these tunnels and can go straight through to the other side where they can, or they are then able to fuse. That's how I like to picture it. Just little guys looking for tunnels, trying to get their way, get to well, a I think, fusion. I think we're learning why none of us did theoretical physics, but yeah. Yes, this is, of course. This is a good, uh, yes. a good picture for people coming to it for the first time, I think. Yeah, you've got to jazz it up in your mind a little bit. Oh, yeah. You're just uh, bored all day. Yeah. You know, have some cartoons like, going. Like you're a particle halfway up a hill, just gets bored, and then goes, ah, oh, this one's... It's not bored, he got tired. Tired. Yeah. He found this really cool tunnel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, why go uphill when you can go straight? And then he turned into a wave halfway through, but that's something else, but it's fine. It's fine, yeah. We'll, we'll do it. That's somebody else's problem. It makes sense yeah. energetically. So yeah, these two charge balls, for the sake of stars, we'll call them protons. Now they've got close enough to fuse, they now do that. And now they are one ball of two protons joined together. So instead of being a hydrogen nucleus, which is one proton, they're now effectively a helium nucleus, which is two protons, well, uh, an isotope of helium. It is this binding of the two together that releases so much energy, which is why stars emit lots of energy and why we're looking to harness fusion as an energy source. So why is it releasing energy? What's so different about, before I just had two balls separately, now I have two balls together, like, what's the difference? This is the, the very exciting, probably first application of E equals MC squared that people come across. The proof that it actually works. I, I think it's in the A level. It might have been pushed back to GCSE now. Anyway, so mass defect. It's all about the mass defect. When you have things bound together, the total, I'm going to say weight, but I mean mass, the, the, the amount they weigh. People will shout at you. They're going to shout at you for the quantum tunneling thing, so it's fine. Same message. As long as they're busy writing that letter when they're hearing me, then we're all good. <laughs> so the, the, t- the sum mass of, of the, the whole is less than the mass of each of those parts separately. And that's weird. So how do we account for that? Well, we account for it with the equivalence of energy and mass equals mc squared. We can think of it as when you're binding them together, you get a bunch of energy out to conserve uh, mass across that equation, which I- works up to a point. I have another like analogy that I like to think of. Do you? Yeah. Oh, good. You know when you uh, bake a cake? I very rarely bake cakes. Oh, you should get on it. I've probably baked maybe three cakes in my life, and they were all somewhat delicious. Okay. Anyway, when you when you bake a cake, you you mix all of it together. When you uh, when you put it in the oven, uh, the cake actually rises. So then you obviously get all of this air escaping out, and you, I I like to think of it as like that air escaping out. You can think of as the energy. So. The mass of like whatever, the flour, the eggs, I don't eat eggs, but the eggs, the, the water, the milk, whatever you're putting in the cake, chocolate chips, some of that mass get turned into air and then that escapes. So I like to think of it as the same way. So the mass from those two balls 
some of it escaped out and now gets released as photons, as light, or something else. So you don't eat eggs. Does that mean the three cakes you baked violate mass conservation? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Like, I made the cakes, pull them out of the oven, massive black hole appeared. Yeah. It was an absolute mess. So one, one thing I'd pick up on that is um, you said the energy in a fusion reaction comes off as radiation. That's not the direct step, right? The, the first, you, know, you have your parent and daughter parent nuclei are your two protons before. They're the ones that fuse. The particle they make after is what we call the daughter particles. So you have your parents and your daughter, your before and after. The energy from the fusion reaction is not actually coming out as radiation straight away. That's a byproduct later. Actually, it's kinetic energy of the daughter particles. That's how the energy comes out. Right? So your, your daughter particles are faster than your parent particles. This actually changes reaction to reaction. Some fusion reactions you do have, let's say, two particles coming in and then they release a particle that just has more energy like because it's faster. Whereas you do have other reactions where, let's say, two particles will come in and then you'll have maybe two particles coming out and then another like light photon coming out as well. So you can actually get examples of both where it's directly emitted as a photon and also where it's giving the daughter particles more energy. So you can have actually, I think you can have both. We're also slightly fudging the question when we talk about this because it's all very well talking about, you know, the mass of all the constituent parts when your constituent parts are protons and mm. one particle each. But as you get to heavier things, it's just not the case that you strip it all down to one nucleon and then reassemble. Mm. You take a, one bit off there and put it on there. Yeah, it's very much mix and match. So it's 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 a simplified simplified picture, is I think. Yeah. But let, let's stick with term. with the simplest. The, yes. The two protons and just yeah. faster daughter product. Well, we have to <laughs> call half half of the daughter product son product. <laughs> I feel like that. I was gonna say yeah. Because yeah. I mean the son and daughter product. Child. Siblings. Oh, fifty one percent of them the daughter products. If you're being so representative. What if the son doesn't have the same? Genetic statistics. I don't, I don't think we're high, are high enough up the, the periodic table to be doing 51%. We're nowhere near 100 things. Unless you're going to start chopping up nucleons. If you have like a really sharp knife. What is the binding energy of quarks? Anyway? The subtle knife. Oh, I think it's very, very. It's all vast. <laughs> quarks are what the nucleons are made out of. They're very, very small and confusing. Yeah, we will not go there. Quarks. Don't ask a fusion scientist. I'm, I'm a quark kind of guy. Too small. Okay. Yeah, then they're not, they're not, we don't have to worry about that. Yeah. That's like people in LHC can think about that. We're, we're sort of nuclear physicists by another name, so we go down to like the, the nucleus. Yeah. And particle physicists worry about everything else. Bless them. So, one extra thing to mention about these um, daughter particles that now have higher, this higher kinetic energy. These, do- these daughter particles, they can now bounce around in a star. So, back to our star picture, this extra kinetic energy can now bounce around with other protons in the sun. And then that is the process that allows these protons now, these other protons to get high enough energy to overcome this barrier. So this release of energy is what helps the sun keep burning for as long as it does. That's how the energy from one reaction gets transferred over to fuel another reaction. Yeah, the sun is essentially self-sustained, it powers itself. As long as it's got enough fuel. But I'm pretty sure by the time this podcast airs, it'll still have plenty of fuel. (laughs) 
then again, my editing is very slow. Isn't it somewhat halfway through its fuel cycle? Yeah, there's about five billion years left yeah. of, the, of the sun before it does something weird. Yeah. Well, well we just we just once we've got fusion cracked here, we'll just take some of our fusion mm. up to the sun. Mm. Inject, just like inject it, just like, like a syringe or something. I'm, I'm sure I'm told that we're going to collide with the Andromeda galaxy long before. Oh, sorry, about the same time as the sun runs out of fuel. So it's kind of a race. That's be a great time to live. Yeah. 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 I mean, you probably still have to be like a couple million years old to see both. Yeah. Well, you never know. Life timescales could be much longer run by yeah. that point. We could all be robots. We could. But ga- I mean, galaxies are like atoms in that they're mostly emptiness yeah you know, nucleus and electrons as we described at the start or so are they collision. dark matter a co- dun, dun, dun. I don't think that's what dark matter anyway never mind so, so a collision need not actually be a collision it might just be lots of things passing by each other in which case it would be a seriously cool time I have seen some gifs on reddit where you like they, someone simulated two galaxies colliding and you can kind of just picture these two essentially disks hitting each other and then just like swirling around into this beautiful mess of a new galaxy. The other super cool thing is, I think it's Martin Rees, but I might be wrong about that, made the point that that's an evolutionary timescale, so it won't be humans that are watching that happen. If you want to collide your own galaxies, there's a very cool cool game called uh, Universe Sandbox, I believe. It's on Steam, get it. We are not endorsing (laughs) any products. Except that one, because yeah. <laughs> Other universe colliding games are available. <laughs> are they? Must be. Yeah, could be. All this talk about mass defect actually has a much better title called Binding Energy, and the binding energy is essentially the energy that gets used up or is expelled when you have two things binding together hence the name binding energy so does anyone have any good ideas or good ways of thinking about this well the university of york is a really very neat outreach project <laughs> called binding blocks that has very some very good explanations of it but essentially the so there's, there's a very the graph of binding energy and all nuclei have that binding energy because they're steadily bigger and bigger amounts of stuff being bound together and so you can plot a chart of the amount of energy that you can get out from splitting up your nucleus as it gets heavier, i.e. moves up the periodic table. And you can plot that graph much more usefully if you do it per nucleon. So the amount of energy out from your nucleus divided by the number of protons and neutrons in in that nucleus. And then you get a beautiful curve that's very, very steep below uh, the element iron and then much, much shallower uh, tail for everything above that which goes up to you know, the most recent discovered elements right at the top. Oganesson, the most Bless recently you. discovered What's it called? element. Oganesson. Oganesson. We did, we did this the other day. He knows all four from last year, which yeah. is... Where did that come from? Kind of nerdy. I think the guy who discovered it had some name, or some name similar to Oganesson, Oganessian or something. So they changed the rules, right? The rule was you could never name what an element after a living person. Except this guy found four in a year. Go on then. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, some of them have good names. Yeah. The scene. No, it's like it has to be named after where it was the a place yeah. or. So another one was Moscovium. Yeah. Named after Moscow. Yeah, I heard that one. That was good. Also a very good name. I think the UK was much more humble. We didn't name any of ours after you know places in the. Isn't UK there like a, a Rutherford? Rutherford, named, um, yeah. Yeah, Rutherford. That's, that's the guy. There's no town Rutherford. Yeah, but there's a guy from England. Yeah, well, yeah, someone else named it. I guess, yeah. He sort of discovered you know, the structure of atoms. I think he gets a pretty big dot. Yeah, okay. He gets a nod. 
I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not. I'm not like saying the guy didn't achieve a lot in his life. Fair enough. I'm just saying, you know, okay. us English people, we got we got our names in the periodic table. Excellent. So, so we were talking. Sorry, we were talking about the binding energy curve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, the logical conclusion. Oh, not logical. The the important endpoint of that discussion is that everything below the the peak of that curve, which is iron. Uh, you get energy out by moving up that line, i.e. Mm. by fusing things together. Yeah, so all the elements up to iron, you can fuse them together and you'll get energy out. After iron, you actually have to put more energy in to fuse them. Whereas for the heavy elements like uranium and plutonium, and splitting them apart will release all the energy. That's a much more of a shallower line. The energy you get from fission reactions, where you split the atoms apart, is actually much, much less the energy you get from fusion reactions because again that line is much much steeper per reaction yes. per reaction yes Bavin's you know picture time how he imagines things <laughs> so imagine you're on a sled on the top of a hill and there are lots of stops along this little hill so you, you can start right at the top of hydrogen and that's where the sun goes you go through a couple of fusion reactions and then you end up at helium and you know you went down pretty steep it was quite fast it was a lot of fun and you're at helium, you're, you know, having fun at helium, and then you feel like doing some more fusion, and then you fuse some more, and then you go down the hill a little bit more. It's like a really, really steep hill, and you're dropping down, and you're, you know, weaving in and out, it's all fun. And eventually you can keep sliding down this hill to get to iron. But then you can start on the other end of the hill, which is uranium, and then you can very, very slowly slide down by fissioning. So you're just splitting the atoms apart, and then you much slowly go down this gentle hill all the way to iron. But iron's at the bottom. You can't do anything more than iron which actually has some <coughs> real-world effects in terms of what stars do and what they can make. I wanted to talk about a point, if my, if my voice will let me. Uh, so we talked about fusion happening in stars, but the universe is, is massive, right? It's pretty big. It's pretty big. And there's a lot, lot of hydrogen in the universe, but a lot of that hydrogen isn't fusing, isn't burning. Mm. So my, oh, my question is twofold. What is it that goes from a cloud of hydrogen to going into this hot ball of fusing gas and why is it that fusion only happens in stars? What is it about stars that allows fusion to happen? So we've already described that stars are pretty hot places so uh, the things in them have quite a lot of energy. They're also by and large very large. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This huge mass of a star adds gravitational force to these protons within them which can help the fusion reactions along and we we think of something called the fusion triple product when thinking about the viability of a fusion reaction and this includes the density of your fusing material its temperature and the amount of time at which it is under conditions where it could fuse so the sun is, is pretty dense, it's pretty hot, but a sun or a star is not the densest or hottest place in the universe necessarily. However, its confinement time, the time that things within it spend in conditions that they could fuse, is incredibly long. If we look at the lifetime of the, the sun, it's several billion years old. So things in it have been there for a long time, so they have a lot of time to be able to collide and undergo these fusion reactions. Which brings us back to so when we were saying at the start about um, fusion, fusion being a process that is likely to be a head-on collision that results in a reaction, 
the reason that I put all those sort of caveats into what I was saying was those kind of glancing collisions is, is what might be what you think of it, the alternative option are unlikely to result in this sort of momentum change you need to crush those things together to make them fuse. And we talked about causing a reaction because not every collision, in fact, very, very few collisions, mm. will actually result in a, a fusion reaction happening, which is why this time factor is very important. They literally have nothing else to do because they're there for so long. Is it like swirl a, around in beautiful patterns. It's like in The Hobbit when they're like trying to find the entrance to the, is it the Mines of Moria? And like the sun shines at the particular thing and like illuminates the keyhole on the rock face. It's a lot like general. Yeah. It's entirely like that. <laughs> like, they, they've been there loads of times yeah. and the sun hasn't shone at the right point. It's been ah. cloudy or something. So they've had to keep so coming back. back. Like that's actually how Tolkien came up with the idea. Of fusion. <laughs> of, of just no. Yeah, of the Tolkien, Tolkien invented fusion. Yeah. It's just sat there in his trench going, yeah. you know what make this all a lot better? God, it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> We're spreading into fake news territory. <laughs> The, the whole confi- confinement time thing is actually quite amazing because from when a fusion reaction actually happens, so when you get these actually four protons combining to get some helium, the amount of time it takes for it to go from the core all the way to the edge and then from the edge all the way to your eye is about a million years. So the light that you're seeing, that energy came from a fusion reaction about a million odd years ago. So that's like the scale of time that we're thinking about. It's got about a million years of just time just to chill. Four protons. Yes. For a helium. Yes. Okay. More, more than four protons. Wait, where? Two, two protons in a helium, four nucleons. Depending on how many helium you want. To I mean, sorry, I will clarify. The four protons needed to fuse together to get to the helium. Okay. In the sun, for example, you don't actually just have. You only need two. Pro- protons and protons going together. No, you have the proton-proton chain in the sun. Essentially, you can't just go from four protons straight into a helium. That just doesn't work. You actually have two protons that fuse together to form an isotope of hydrogen, and then that hydrogen, I think, fuses with another proton to get some a helium isotope, helium and then three. helium three, which is made up of two protons and one neutron, and then that reacts with another proton to get your helium four. And again, very simplified. There's definitely a lot more steps to this very complicated proton-proton chain. Yeah. There's, there's loads of stuff that can happen with helium-3. It can collide with another helium-3 and make... But in general, to get your helium-4, there is one most likely path, yeah, but there's a bunch of I different I options. I don't think it is add on a proton each time. I no, think it is, it's, it's, it's definitely not. I'm way oversimplifying yeah, yeah. this. The proton-proton chain has like 15 steps. Well, there's, there's a bunch of different fusion reactions. The other interesting one is the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle, how, how those are produced in the sun. Yeah. Hmm. Although I regret bringing that up because... Other than what it's called, I don't know anything about yeah. it. Very early on, when a star is made up of mostly hydrogen, it's essentially mostly just making up helium. But as the star ages and it's got more helium, what it starts doing is it starts making the heavier elements. So then you start getting carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. And as we mentioned earlier, it can go all the way up to iron for some of the biggest stars. So the core of a star will be made up of iron. And then you can have lots of shells of different elements. You can think about it like an onion. So the very core of it is just iron. And then as you go out, the shells, you get shells of lighter and lighter elements to have a very, very thin shell of possibly hydrogen or helium right on the outside. So you sort of think that's, that's a product of the fact as, you, as you've got a nuclei, you're adding more and more protons to it when you're fusing it, when you're making it heavier. Mm. You're making that heavier, but you've also got more protons, so it's uh, more highly charged. 
which means that it's even harder to do, bring two of those together. Mm. So the reason you have your heavier ones in the center is because you need those hotter, denser regions to be able to um, fuse the, the heavier nuclei together. And that's why you get your layer system. Yes, your lovely sun onion. Mm-hmm. Sun onion. Brilliant. So then the, the lovely graph people were describing earlier with the peak at iron. Or the trough. Or the trough. The well, Google binding energy curve. We'll see which one Google picks. Mm. Google will be on. Oh, the it's side. definitely. It's definitely that. It's not the ski slope. It's, it's it's the peak. You can think about it either way. You can think about it either way. Yeah, but the, you I can think, think of the most it, popular is peaked. Another way of thinking of it is the amount of energy you need to put in to separate it out into its separate nucleons. So you know, for your helium, the amount of energy you would need to actually get. Four, oh sorry, two separate protons and two separate neutrons. I think that's where, so, that's where the term actually binding energy comes from. Yeah. It's, the, it's the amount of energy you need to unbind them. So we've just talked about fusing things from, from hydrogen up to iron. And then we briefly discussed earlier fissioning things, splitting them apart, such as uranium and heavier nuclei. Now, you might wonder where we get all these things past iron if fusing iron nuclei or anything above iron nuclei doesn't actually produce any energy, so it's energetically unfavourable. Now there are what could be described as rare occurrences called supernovae, which is where the stars, they get to the end of their life cycle essentially, so they've fused all... It's a, it's a balance between your, your outwards pressure from your fusion you've got this heat that you're generating from your fusion that generates an outwards pressure and that's balancing itself with a gravitational pull inwards. It's where your fusion starts to die down a lot. You run out of your main hydrogen fuel. Your fusion power goes down and so your fusion pressure goes down and your gravitational pull starts to take over. And if that takes over enough and can really bring everything together really hot and really dense, then you've suddenly got enough to jump over this this uh, iron barrier and this this happens in a huge explosion I like to think in of it space. Well, in space with another analogy Bath's picture time Bath's picture time is this all the way teacher uses the help is it analogies yeah. it's just a bunch of drawings really okay. like we have a colouring book that you colour in we did maths no we I, didn't do that okay. we just did um, colouring <laughs> bit of interpretive dance bit of an only in fourth year we weren't ready for that first year <laughs> You can think of like this whole balancing of pressure as an arm wrestle. So you've got <laughs> gravity on one side fighting the, the pressure from fusion on the other side. For several billions of years, these guys are like fairly well balanced. Every now and then, like maybe gravity will like win a little bit, but then fusion will come back and like kick it up a notch. And you get a whole bunch of these little fights going between gravity and fusion power, fusion pressure. Outwards pressure. Outwards pressure, yeah. So remember, the gravity is going inwards and the fusion power is going outwards. But eventually, you know, fusion gets tired. Gravity is unending, like, relentless. It just carries on and on and on. Fusion power just completely gives up, and then the gravity just slams down. But then what happens is, because there's so much energy contained in that very, very small space, the fusion, fusion just happens everywhere, all the time, even though it doesn't matter that it's not energetically favorable. And you get essentially get this massive explosion with a whole bunch of different things, like uranium, plutonium, anything past iron coming out. And that's why we're here. Star stuff. We are stardust. Hashtag deep. <laughs> this is this is described as the most important 
thing we discovered in the last century was that everything is made of stuff. Double stuff Oreos. Excuse me? <laughs> the most important invention we've ever, or the most ah. important thing we've ever discovered. Double okay. stuff Oreos. Alright, so the second... Oreo McFlurry, sorry. No, no, Oreo no, McFlurry. But they came from Star Stuff. Hey. No. They came from Star Stuff, but no. that doesn't really matter where it comes from. It's more the fact that we discovered it. Everything. I don't think I would class that as a discovery. An invention. More, more an invention. Okay, yes. fine. You know, humans are stardust, greatest discovery, greatest invention, or humans. <laughs> Sorry? The discovery that all things Everything are is. formed in this, the crucible of these dying stars. Like Oreo McFlurries. Okay, we're going to stop saying McFlurries here, aren't we? Oreo ice cream, unbranded, <laughs> from a McDonald's. Sure. Oreos, you could have just stuck with Oreos. I don't know why I did Oreos. We are not endorsing anyone. Yeah, that, that, so that discovery was interesting because it was sort of three people over, you know, people say it didn't get any attention at the time. And there's an argument that that's because it was three people working really hard in collaboration and it wasn't one person like, overnight in a brilliant moment. And so it wasn't sort of written about and it wasn't a great story to tell, but it was incredibly important. And one of the people who wrote that paper died two or three years ago. Neil deGrasse Tyson does a really great, in one of his sermons. In one of his sermons. They're definitely A gospel of Neil deGrasse Tyson. Those, those speeches are powerful things. I think you're, you're bringing up an important point that I think is quite a common misconception about science. There's a lot of people still think it's done. Einstein had his massive discovery all by himself and got loads of public attention. Mm. I think when you've still got really prominent figures in the media like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Brian Cox, these sort of people, it makes a lot of people think that science is still carried out by individual geniuses. And, but yeah. it's, it's just not the case. There's too much work for there to be any one person to come up with a great idea. I mean, even still, Higgs is, would be a really prominent figure that people might be able to recall. He, even, even he was not something by himself. He had a huge team of people working um, to help him out. And that's, that's, the, that's the science that we experience now. We're working in parts of huge teams, all working together to do huge amount of work to get these small discoveries step by step. There's not often or ever really these big leaps by, yeah. by single people anymore. You're redeciding your two-pound coin. What? Oh, you're looking at me like you haven't read the inscription on the side of your two-pound coin. I, I have not read the inscription on my two-pound coin. The side, I don't know if I have a two-pound coin. Written on the side of your two-pound coin. Oh, here we go. Oh, he's got a two-pound coin. I never have two-pound coins. Here we go. I, I, yeah. Exciting moment for the listeners. I will read out the side of the two-pound coin. Isn't that a coincidence? Will what? is great. <laughs> Which side? The, the edge. The, the edge. edge. Where does it start? I've already read it. Uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. Standing on the shoulders of giants. Even Isaac Newton, one of who would surely win the Nobel Prize every year if it was allowed, mm. <laughs> said this. If I have seen further than others, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. He acknowledged that it couldn't possibly be just him. But this is probably for a whole other... Because yeah. it screws up like paper citations and mm. Nobel uh, recommendations as well. So it's a very interesting kind of thing about the way we do science, but we'll talk about that. My dad is still very convinced that I'm going to invent something in science and then become very rich. Ah, I think my dad thinks that too. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm just not think this is Yeah. <laughs> You know, my dad is very much convinced that, oh, you can just invent something in fusion and then patent it and become very, very rich. And that's what some companies think. That's what some companies think and, tr- and attempt, but it's very hard to explain how you're essentially working on this massive team effort project 
where you're all trying to achieve the exact same thing. And I guess trying to convey that to maybe an older generation might be a bit more difficult because people are used to like having that one person in charge or one person running the show and he, he might be the face of it. But in actuality, there's probably like hundreds of people actually working together, hmm. which is quite a nice thought. It's much nicer. Collaboration is important. Collaboration is important. It's, I, it's one of the things that I think allows science to excel so well. The going on frequent conferences, always peer-reviewing papers, it's what, working in such big teams, it's incredibly hard to achieve logistically. People have got to go real efforts into making sure the right people meet and making sure that they're there to criticise or help. It's, it's the one thing I think that makes science work so well. I'm sure we'll revisit the topic though. Yeah, that yes. was a future episode. Yes. Collaboration. Spoiler alerts. So I think we're, we're going to wrap up today's episode. But before we do, you know, we'll just go around and see, like, if everyone, like, gives a quick summary of, like, what they think they've learned today in today's <laughs> episode and, like, what they would like to... If they could send one message to our many, many listeners, like, what would that message be? So I'll hand it over to Will quickly. So I think the, the take-home message for me is that fusion is an incredibly rare occurrence. As a reaction, it's really unlikely, and it needs these hostile, hot, extreme conditions for it to actually work. And it's what, it's what, you know, the universe is mostly hydrogen, there's hydrogen everywhere, huge gases of it, but the fusion itself only really is concentrated in these small spots of stars, you know, and that's because big forces of gravity, high temperatures, high densities, you know, you've got to, got to work a lot to get this, get this thing burning. Andrew? Well, I don't know if it's the most important thing, but certainly my favourite thing about it is this idea that this is probably you know, the a really nice, fairly straightforward, real-world example of that E equals MC squared thing working. Uh, and so the, the key to understanding fusion, fusion energy, why anybody might care about it, is understanding this concept of different masses and then having to conserve mass through these reactions. Uh, and that will give you, if you can see that curve and you can understand what's going on there, you, you have this profound insight into how you move. Move up through heavier elements and that gives you uh, energy out of these reactions. Joe? I think, although fusion is a, a very tricksy reaction like, and unlikely, wherever you look in the universe there are stars undergoing fusion. So I think that should give us hope to, to carry on and uh, deliver fusion on Earth. Go about what do you like? I think the thing about fusion is that, to me, it's just like, it's a big, bright, shining hope of humanity. <laughs> the way I see fusion is in, like, maybe 150, 200 years, God knows how long, I'm not going to make any promises. Like, we're all going to be running our cars off of fusion energy, we're going to be powering our lights with fusion energy, you know, warming our homes with fusion energy. So I think that's the thing that I like to think about most in Fusion is just like the fact that it has quite a lot of potential. Our next episode will be focusing on why we want Fusion and what kind of impact it can have on our society. Just to clarify, I think Bav means running our cars and homes, etc. off electricity generated from <laughs> No, I mean an actual mini Fusion reactor in okay. every car. Okay, maybe that's what he said 200 years. Cause Two to 300 years. I hope I'm alive. That's not even what we were talking about. That's sick. We have been Talkamac. 
<laughs> cool. Cool. Uh, do I stop? I press stop. I can't actually remember. You're just the old man at the end of the video going, how do I turn this off? I'm not entirely <laughs> sure how to turn this off. <coughs> Mark, watch. Okay, no, so yeah, stop. <laughs>